Welcome back to the Balancing Act podcast. I'm Andy Tempty. On the Balancing Act, we talk to business leaders and industry experts to explore the balancing acts we play in our professional lives and learn about the events that put rocket boosters behind their career success. Today, I am thrilled to introduce you to Allison Rutledge Parisi. Allison is the Senior Vice President of People Team at JustWorks, a prominent PEO that is a people... It's an HR platform, Andy. I'm going to help you out here. It's a SaaS-enabled HR platform for small businesses, headcount 2 to 100. It's for entrepreneurs and small business owners to help them thrive and not have to worry about all that HR compliance stuff that no one really knows how to do. It's the definition of PEO. It's one that is is not prominent. What does that stand for? Uh, professional Employee Organization. Yes. It's the nerdiest, most boring acronym you will ever hear. But basically, it's like, hey, you want to run your business. And there's all this other stuff you have to do that you don't know how to do. You're an architect or yep. a nonprofit leader or some other kind of small. We'll do it for you. And JustWorks is really awesome at it. Excellent. Well, we'll talk more about JustWorks later. I just wanted to get that that uh, arcane PEO definition <laughs> out there for folks. Uh, so today, as you might expect, we're going to talk about the world of human capital and people resources. Uh, Allison and I used to work together at Kaplan. I'm so, so happy to have you on the show. Uh, before we get uh, started, uh, we do this on all our episodes. Please tell our listeners your story. Okay, well, in a nutshell, um, I'm a people leader and I work in all, I've worked in all different kinds of environments, as we'll discuss. Um, and I've had a lot of big pivots in my career, which is probably worth mentioning because uh, it'll come into this whole balancing concept that's so fruitful. Um, I started my career as an actor. That's a very far afield moment. I um, spent my 20s with some success. It was really exciting and fun and then decided I should grow up. So I went to law school. And was an intellectual property attorney for a while, which brought me to Kaplan, led me to meet you, Andy, and all these amazing people I'm still very close with. And their wash, rinse, spin, rinse, I turned into a business person thanks to all the great people around me who gave me that opportunity um, and discovered HR, strategic HR, which I, I deeply believe is critical to any the thriving of any organization, let alone business. And I've worked in a number of settings since then. Right. So... The accelerant. Uh, I, I love to ask this question. You know, what's that one event that just put uh, those rocket boosters behind your career? Yeah, well, it's hard to pinpoint a one event, isn't it? And like I said, there's a lot of a lot of learnings in every phase of your career, including parts of your career that may not look like they go together. Um, I certainly have a bunch of those, but uh, I'm not just saying this because you and I met at Kaplan. Kaplan was the accelerant. It was, uh, when I was there, you know, um, people took a bet on me and gave me opportunities to try to do things that frankly, I probably wasn't qualified to do and then gave me the support to figure it out. And, um, those eight years were pivotal and completely transforming where I felt I could put my energy and my skill set. And if I hadn't been at Kaplan, that probably never would have happened. So I would say that was the pivot. And it was a learning organization. So I guess it makes sense that um, it would provide that kind of opportunity to its people. Yeah, I, I, uh, many of our guests are former uh, Kaplan folks. And uh, that the same kind of rocket booster question, 
most of them will touch back to some experience uh, in uh, in in their in their Kaplan uh, in their Kaplan world. So thanks for that. Now you have a broad range of experiences in uh, roles such as chief administrative officer, chief people officer. If you had to choose the most important balancing act that the chief administrative officer or CHRO has to play in general, what would that be? Well, um, I think this is a fairly obvious answer, but it's one I feel is very accurate. And that is you, you, you have to balance thinking about business, thinking like a business person, but through the lens of people. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of different talents to make an organization thrive. But it won't thrive unless someone in a fairly senior position is constantly connecting the economics and the commercial thoughts of business success to the humans who are going to execute it, which is very hard to do. And if you have some other capability, marketing or customer service or uh, product development or technology, you're just not going to be able to keep that lens in your mind. So the balancing act that's critical, and I, I think I blur the lines between chief administrative officer and chief people officer, because for me, being the head of HR is an operational role. It is a strategic and operational role. So whatever you call it, and some businesses are sort of allergic to the HR acronym, so they call it CAO instead and add a bunch of other things on top of it. That was certainly true at Kaplan. Um, uh, you know, really, it's like, okay, how are we going to get folks to feel connected to the mission, to understand the different tasks that are put before them and feel connected to the big picture? Because then they will walk through walls for us. And if we don't do that, all the best laid plans in the world won't get executed. And so that's what I think the balancing act is. Um, not to take too much of a 90 degree turn here, but uh, I just want to explore that a little bit more. How have you in your career helped leaders and managers who don't have that built in people focus to uh, embrace that balancing act between business results and people. What, what have you done to help educate and, and bring some of those uh, uh, folks along? Yeah. Well, like I said, I've worked in a number of different environments. So here's how I think about it across all of them. The first thing is to ensure that I am steeped in the business strategy. Like I, I can't fail to understand the economics of it, the financial uh, pressures and constraints, who the customer is, how we present our value proposition in the market. I, I would use that language, including some of the nonprofits I've worked for, just really understanding the mission. If I skip that step, I have no credibility. Right. I'm just the HR chick in the corner. So I have to really start by being a business person. And then once I am fluent and credible around those issues, um, it, then I have to figure out what is what are the credible arguments for this environment? And that changes radically depending on where I work. So I have to really pay attention to the culture of the organization and figure out how to present an idea that's consistent, but with the language that will persuade in that environment. It was really different at Kaplan than it was at the startups I've worked, really different in the startups where I've worked from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, really different there from Macmillan Publishing. I defined the language that would persuade. So it's not that what I was arguing for or the view I was presenting changed, but how I described it had to adjust to the ears and the minds and hearts of the leaders. Influence. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, so I want to narrow the scope of uh, this previous question just a little bit to your specific career arc. What's the most important balancing act that you've played that's contributed to your career success? 
Um, well, this is related to my prior point. I, I think listening and learning versus speaking, influencing, directing, that's the core balance. I guess I'm taking it right down to very fundamental things, but that's right. the core balancing act. And especially if you're leading from a non-revenue producing function like HR, when you're leading from a revenue producing uh, function, your, um, your credibility and your power to influence is pretty direct. You're talking about commercial success or commercial non-success, very direct, very, it's not simple, but it's direct. If you're talking about something that's not related to commercial success directly, then you have to listen very carefully. Um, and then, and then uh, after you've done all aspects of the discovery, speak with authority, clearly, concisely, about why the arguments you're presenting or the view you're presenting is going to make the difference in the mission success. And I think that's, that's a balancing act that I put there. And if you're the head of the people function, who you are listening to has to go all the way down. And it's really important to come out of that executive bubble and find the ways where you can hear what the lived experiences of employees on the ground, frontline employees, individual contributors, folks who are actually doing the thing, because that executive bubble is the enemy. Yeah. You, you can feel so spectacularly if you stay in that bubble and you're only talking to folks who have a C in their title. And so if you are up there, it takes a lot of thoughtful effort to hear what's happening on the ground because folks won't tell you, right? So you right. have to like find the way to get down there and set up a, an environment where you will actually hear what's going on. And that is the other balancing act is to be all fancy up there in the C-suite for sure, because you're not going to get anywhere unless you show up that way. You got to show up like an executive and then find a way to show up like a really listening person to folks who are quite understandably suspicious of someone with hiring and firing power saying, no, really, how do you feel what's going on? You have to really listen. Yeah, that uh, we adopted a tool uh, within Kaplan Professional. Uh, it's it's a it's a lean and continuous improvement tool called the Gemba Walk. Gemba meaning where the actual thing happens. It's a Japanese term, and uh, we would walk to a department. Uh, we would go to their Gemba board. We'd set our phones set our phones aside. Actually, turn them off, and just show up and say, Hey, how, how's it going? There's no risk here. There's, there's no wrong answers. How, how can we help you? Uh, and we opened our ears uh, and it was a really, really great way to get close to the work. So I really appreciate you, uh, pointing that out for, for everybody. Um, uh, Allison, uh, before we break for commercial, I want to take that uh, another detour. Uh, I'm keenly interested in your experience working for uh, the Met. What, what was the most important difference between working within those major corporations and then moving to a venerable institution like the Met? What had to change? Uh, well, okay, so the Met was very different, Andy. You and I are used to the consistent, crisp, um, criteria of revenue, operating income, and margin. And no matter where you work, that's the same language. It's the lingua franca of business. It is not the lingua franca of 150-year-old uh, um, uh, cultural institutions of global renown. In fact, if I use the word operating income, most people would blink at me like, what is she even talking about? And they would certainly regard me as highly suspect. So I had to really understand that the language was mission, um, visitor, not customer, 
um, and uh, art and education and meaning and culture. And like, these were the words go back to my old English bachelors, you know, not, not my business experience, but I had to bring that operational acumen I developed and wrap it in new language. So that's the first big difference. Second big difference. Most organizations are focused on one service or one product, even if it's multiple products, like in a particular segment of the economy, you're an education business or you're a technology business. You have engineers um, or you're retail and you have people who sell. The Met has every job title you can think of. They have art historians, they have builders, they have publishers, engineers, people who cook, people who sell products, people who design. It's every job title you can think of, including security and um, cleaners. It's like a city. Yeah. It has every job title you find in a city. And it's also like a city in that it had distinct neighborhoods, each with their own culture. It's highly, highly siloed. And the other interesting aspect, as I looked at the demographics of the 1,300 humans who worked for the Met, is that each generation was equally represented. So if you made a pie chart of the demographics of the Met, you would find every generation from Gen Z all the way up to the silent generation equally represented, which means when you communicate or try to tell somebody, uh, address a tough issue, you have to think through every generational lens. And my period of time at the Met had every issue you could think of. Uh, Scandal about the leadership, economic distress, recent layoffs, COVID, racial reckoning, closing the museum, seeing it through the pandemic, opening the museum in August of 2020. That's pre-vaccine. And we opened because that was our mission. Yeah. So it was a really amazing three and a half years, almost four years. I'm so, so grateful I had that experience. I learned a ton. Uh, I'm very happy to be back in the for-profit sector because yeah. it's, a, it's a more straightforward discussion. Yeah. Who, who's, the most, who, who's the most interesting person you met during that time? You know, it's, you know, I could name drop because that board is 103 people who are billionaires and known oh. bullface names, you know, Anna Wintour and David uh, Koch and like, name it. But that's not the most interesting people I met. The most interesting people I met were the um, curators and the conservators who touch ancient, ancient objects and keep them from disintegrating. And the riggers and the HVAC guys, because it turns out the most important title in a museum is HVAC. (laughs) And the people who had to be there through the pandemic, no matter what, were the guys who made sure it was cool enough and dry enough. Because without that, devastation ensues. So it's all about HVAC in the museum world, actually. Oh, that is a fantastic answer. Thank you. Thank you, Allison. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. I'm Andrew Tempty. The alignment of personal purpose with that of the business we lend our talents to is essential to achieving optimal work-life balance. But do you know what your personal purpose is? To help answer this crucial question, I've created a guidebook to help define your personal purpose and a vision statement to serve as your North Star. Visit andrewtempty.com purpose to download your free copy today. And we're back with Allison Rutledge Parisi. Allison, on the show, we talk a lot about lifelong learning. Can you help us understand your personal journey of lifelong learning when you first realized that learning never stops? And 
how does the concept of balance play into that journey? Yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely feel like that's actually the theme of my pivot-ridden career since I had done radically different jobs in a single adult lifetime so far. Um, so, you know, I started as an actor and then went to law school at 30. That's certainly an example of lifelong learning. Then that worked sure in a is. law firm uh, with a, a specialty in intellectual property, privacy law, and tech, and then ended up at good old Kaplan and shifted over to the business side where I did not know a damn thing, Andy. I want to tell you, when I started at Kaplan, one of the first questions I asked, thankfully to a friendly person, is what does ROI stand for? Like, I did not know. Yeah. <laughs> I was a lawyer. <laughs> I did not know. And what I really learned, um, I'll, use, I'll keep using Kaplan as an example, is, is two big lessons on learning uh, on the job. One, uh, the CFO was a guy named Bob Lane. You know Bob. Oh, yeah. And I quickly figured out that he knew a lot of things that I didn't understand that I had to understand. And I would go into his, thankfully, he liked to hang out and gossip. And I'd go into his office every morning at 830 with a cup of coffee. And I'd say, so what's on your mind, Bob? And that's how I figured out how to think like a business person. That was one aspect of the education. And the other aspect is um, we had a CEO, as you know, Andy, who was quite a character, very tough guy, Jonathan. And the thing that Jonathan did for me is he's, he, well, he would tell me how, how useless I was all the time, which galvanized me to try to be better. But he also made me do an accounting workbook. This is pre-learning uh, online. Yeah. So he handed me an actual print book. It's the kind of book you flip over to do the other half. And he sent me on a whole bunch of planes to all kinds of places to address issues of all kinds of nature and said, while you're flying, do the accounting workbook. That was huge. Yeah. And it's a very humble example of how like every opportunity is an opportunity to go, oh, okay, I get it now. Yep. You, you, yeah. That, the accounting workbook, do you still have it as a, as a memento? That would, that you know, would be I really, really cool. Wish I I wish I did, but I've moved so much. Uh, I lost some along the way, but it lives in my heart yeah. <laughs> forever. <laughs> okay, accountants out there, an accounting workbook lives in somebody's heart. That, uh, said by no one ever, except for Allison Rutledge Parisi. <laughs> Allison, we frequently discuss the balancing act that we have to play between the application of technical skill and human, or what some people call soft skills, in the modern world of work, you know, let's suppose you have a college graduate with designs to become a chief administrative officer sitting right in front of you right now. What advice do you give them to balance human and technical skills as they launch their career? I think the first thing I'd say is let's just get rid of that terrible phrase, soft skills. It is the yes. worst. It is the worst because it makes it sound like a nice to have and a, a, a thing that you only do when you have time, as opposed to the make or break that, that all your technical skills will founder fail and crash if you don't understand your people. And so it's a bit of a curse, that phrase, soft skill. I'm glad you used it because I know you hate it too. And uh, it's good to sort of stomp on it a little bit. So what I would yeah. say is, um, sorry, dude, you got to do it all. You cannot omit the technical understanding. And this goes for someone who wants to go into HR also, which tends to attract very humanist oriented people. And I myself, come on, I was a major in English and theater. Like you don't get more humanist than me, but that's why I brought up the accounting workbook yeah. and all the deep um, review I've done since then of business strategies and benefits plans and 
you know, really grinding, boring technical material to ingest it and master it and not let it intimidate you is critical if you're humanist oriented. And if you are technically oriented to sit with people and listen to their experience and deeply try to understand them. Because to be a leader, and especially now, because you know the norms of work have shifted so dramatically, Andy. So, so many of the ways we work together when you and I were colleagues have utterly changed. And to, to, to embrace these new norms, to work with them and respect them and make them work for you, you've got to understand people. Yeah. I'll say one more thing, and that is the role of someone who leads any function that has HR in it, whether it's a CAO or a CHRO, has completely changed in my career. Early on in my career, uh, people would use CAO sometimes, CAO sometimes, because they didn't want to say CHRO because HR was like, you know, personnel. That has changed completely because now companies understand if they don't bring people along with them, it's going to crash. Right. And um, so that's a good thing. Um, but you, you, so you need to balance that urgency and understanding though also with a deep business acumen. You need both. So that's my, that's my spiel. Yeah. I, I really appreciate your, your answer here because uh, normally I'm, talking to somebody who's a bit more technically oriented and they have to open their mind to the people side. And it's the, you know, it's usually stories about the realization, oh, wow, I've got to pay attention to my people and uh, I've really got to grow compassion and uh, critical thinking, et cetera, uh, communication. Uh, but you started from the other way around, uh, yeah. which was, uh, which yeah. was really, really great. You've got, and, and I like, I like your terminology humanist. So you, you, you come out of the box uh, focused on human skill, but the technical stuff also matters. So that uh, you're, you're like one in a hundred of individuals who kind of take it from, have taken it from that angle. I really appreciate that. Allison, you have access to a time machine. You have 240 characters to send a message to an earlier version of you. What is the message and what previous version of yourself do you send it to? Oh, uh, that's uh, wow. Um, I think I'd probably send it to myself when I was making the change from being an attorney to being a business person. It was very scary. Speaking of that technical topic, when I was an attorney, there were four corners around my specialty and any problem within that box was my problem and anything outside of that box was not my problem. So when I walked into a room, I knew what my value add was and I did have technical expertise no one else had and I knew what I should speak to and I could sit and just hang out. And then when I shifted over to being a business person, there was no problem that wasn't my problem. Every problem was my problem, right. including problems I had no idea how to solve. And that was, um, there were a lot of pain in learning. There's pain in learning. There's anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. And what I would say to myself then, and I still have to do this for myself now, is, but, but then I was less good at the self-talk. Um, I'd say, Arpy, don't be afraid. Just do the right thing and be learning, and be listening, and you'll be all right. Even if it feels like you're not going to be all right, you're going to be all right. Yeah. 
That's uh, a it's a great message. I I do really wish that we had a time machine that we could stuff uh, two hundred eighty character messages into and send them to send them to ourselves. Uh, so as we wrap things up, Allison, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, tell us more about JustWorks and uh, what's next for you personally. Yeah. Oh, JustWorks is such a great company. Um, the mission of serving small business owners and entrepreneurs, that's an awesome mission. And as you know, companies shape themselves in the style of their customer, very much so, right? Whoever your customer is really impacts the culture of the company, even in ways you don't even expect. So I, I just, it's a wonderful organization that has a lot of, a lot of humility, a lot of focus on the challenges that someone who's striving to create and build that, what that person faces. It's very founder focused. And yet it has scaled now to um, over 1200 people and multiple locations and is headed to being global and is headed to scaling, probably doubling in size again in terms of headcount. And, um, and so it has to, it stays in touch with the small, the intimate and the individual while it scales. And that's why I really uh, love JustWorks and its mission. That's, that's awesome. Uh, any, uh, and going back to the Met anytime soon, any acting in your All future? The time. All the time. I, I never don't go to the Met, the Frick, the Whitney. I said, as I said, I'm a museum junkie. I'm a culture junkie. I love the arts. Um, super happy to be participating in them as a audience member. <laughs> and um, yeah, so and living in New York City is pretty, pretty great. So that's it. All right. Well, we're going to close out the show. Thank you so much for being here, Allison. My name is Andy Tempty. This is the Balancing Act podcast. Find us on all the major uh, streaming services. Please like, subscribe, rate, share the show. We're creating a public good so that people can learn and grow throughout their lives. And Allison, you made a significant contribution to that today. Thank you. Thank you.